0: Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us nine eleven 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. I'm Andy. I'm one of the elders here at Resurrection Church. I want to welcome you. we got a full house this morning. Um, if you're a visitor here, uh, we, we want to welcome you. Church family, can we welcome our visitors this morning? And we're welcoming our nine o'clockers to this 11 o'clock service. So it's so good for us all to be together. Um, the host team's trying to find seats for people, and that's a good thing uh, this morning. Um if you've not been here before, if you need more information about the church and the seat back in front of you, there's a card, there's a QR code there that you can scan. That'll get you to the link tree of all that's happening and going on here at Resurrection Church. We'd encourage you to do that and even the opportunity to sign up for our e-blast and to continue to, to uh, be in the know at Resurrection Church. This morning, um, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to ch- uh, finish chapter 19 this morning. If you want to turn there, Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. We'll start reading in verse 28. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they said, "The Lord has need of it." And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they s- set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to you God. God.
1: Thank you, Andy. Good morning, everybody. Boy, well, how great is it to be all together, huh? Yeah, this is great. It's, it's good to see you all this morning. Um, as I sat down to write this sermon this week, I, I had to pause for a minute. Because we're here. Finally. Jerusalem. If you're new to Resurrection Church, you might have picked up on the fact that we've we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke for quite some time as a church. And if if you were to look back, it was right at a year ago, literally last November, that we were in chapter 9 and we read these words. He set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. We began this final journey to Jerusalem which covers really the last nine or 10 months or so of Jesus's earthly ministry in Galilee. We began that a year ago and it's taken us a full year to get here where he's finally riding into the city for the last time. You know, it's one of the telltale signs that you are giving careful attention to the Word of God, not just kind of a surface reading of the Bible, but you're actually paying attention to the words that are there. That when you do that, it takes time. You know, quantity of time, I don't think that makes people more or less spiritual, but I will say this if you want to know if you're being a careful reader of Scripture, you could look at the amount of time it's taking you. I'm not not a fan of just flying through the Bible as fast as you can in a year. Pay attention to the words that are there and that's what we've been doing and it's taken us this long to get here. I'll tell you another sign that you're paying careful attention to the word of God is if you are grappling with the magnitude and the specificity of God's sovereignty. It's all over the Bible's. It's all over our Bibles. I mean, regardless of where you might say you land theologically or not, even if you're aware of the categories that relate to God's sovereignty, if you pay careful attention to the word of God, you're gonna have to grapple with a God who is big. I wanna know you. That's the first time I've heard that song. I said something to Eric. I said, this is new to me. He's like, you haven't heard this? Where have you been? I haven't heard this song. But I sat there and looked at those words. I want to know you, not just know stuff about you. You're not an invention that I make up. Boy, we'd like him to be sometimes, wouldn't we? Because the more you get to know God, you know, that, that's a scary prayer to pray. Like like when you ask God, Lord, I want to know you. You know, they're going to be, moments in time where you're going to be just so overwhelmed in a good way with his goodness and his love and his mercy and his beauty and his worth. But there are also going to be times where you are absolutely in awe and the only thought you have could be like that of John the Revelator when he saw, when a a window was opened to him to see the Lord Jesus in his glory. What did he do? He said, I fell on my face like a dead man. Because he's that big. He's that sovereign, meticulously sovereign. This text is sobering. It's very sobering because what's all over it is the magnitude and the specificity of God's sovereign action in the world. Let me set the stage for you. Let's think about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Micah chapter five, verse two you know this. We're 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 right on the threshold of Christmas season, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. God's sovereign plan was for His Son to be born in this little town called Bethlehem, small little place, in a manger. Right? Little Mary, little Joseph, peasants, nobodies, from nowhere. Nazareth was like, I'm not going to name a town around here because I might offend some of you, but Nazareth. (laughs) What good could come from Nazareth? But the prophecy was God had said, My son's going to be born in Bethlehem. So what did he do? He flicked his finger and moved the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus called for a census that required everybody in the whole known world to go back to their hometown. Why? All to get little Mary and little Joseph to Bethlehem for the Lord of heaven and earth to be born in a stable. The magnitude and the specificity of God's sovereignty is overwhelming. Now we come to the triumphal entry, as it's called. And here was the prophecy from of old Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your king. Everybody say king. King. That sounds like a big deal, doesn't it? Big, magnificent king. Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, foal of a donkey. The magnitude and the specificity of God's sovereign plan. Is Jesus king? And is he coming to claim his rights of rule? If you were here last week, we we read the parable of the 10 minas. And the big point of that parable was in the parable the nobleman has is claiming his rights of rule and that's not in question nobody is going to resist or question the right of rule of the nobleman in that parable and Jesus told that to make the point absolutely clear he's king and he's come to claim his rights of rule the kingdom has come and then Luke ties it all together in our text today when he says and when he had said these things Jesus is king And he's come to claim his rights of rule. And somewhere, at some point, a donkey was born. I'm not sure how you breed donkeys. I mean, somebody might could fill in the blanks here. But suffice to say, there was a mama and a daddy donkey somewhere. Right? A donkey was born. You know, Jesus didn't go to Hertz rent a donkey in Jerusalem. There was a a home or there was a business and somebody acquired a donkey. And not just any donkey. The donkey. Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and, and before God said, let there be light, he picked out a donkey. That's the one. And that donkey was nurtured, fed, it grew up. And somehow it had never been ridden. And Jesus looks at a couple of his disciples and he says, all right, we're about to go into Jerusalem. And you go in there and you're going to find a donkey tied up and you grab it. And if anybody asks you, you just tell them the Lord has need of it. And apparently that was enough because that's exactly what happened. They grab this donkey and they come and they put Jesus on it. And he begins to make the trek into Jerusalem. And listen, they know the prophecy. They know what Zechariah had prophesied. They believed this Jesus to be the Messiah. And now he's about to ride into Jerusalem. And just a little tidbit, there's just so many little nuggets in this text. Luke says that Jesus was nearing Bethphage. Bethphage means the house of unripe figs. Think about Jerusalem for a minute. It's bustling. It's Passover. It's full of religious activity, but it's a house of unripe figs because, as Luke's going to tell us, they're, they're going to they're miss the time of their visitation. Bethany means a house of affliction. What is Jesus going to do in Jerusalem? He is going to take affliction on himself. He is going to suffer and he is going to die so that we could stand before this wonderful, amazing, good, and yet terrifying God righteous before him because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The attention to detail by God just blew me away in this text. Here Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy, intentionally so, He's riding into town on a donkey, and you can feel the magnitude of the moment, can't you? Especially for the disciples. Let's let's read this again. Verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When you hear the word disciples in Scripture, when you read that word, what do you think of? You think of the twelve, right? Right? There's a lot more than the 12 here. Luke makes a point to tell us the whole multitude of his disciples. Perhaps, I don't know for sure, perhaps Zacchaeus is there. Remember that guy? Perhaps Bartimaeus is there. Luke told us way back in chapter 8, I think it was, that there's a number of women following Jesus. Mary Magdalene, a lady named Joanna, who was the wife of Herod's household manager, is there probably. There's another lady named Susanna and Luke said many other women. And it says, Luke says that they're praising God for the mighty works that they had seen. We know from John's gospel that it's not been long since he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Could Mary, Martha, and Lazarus from Bethany be here as well? There's a multitude of disciples, and they're praising him as Messiah, as king. He's come to Jerusalem to claim his rights of rule. And they're right, aren't they? Sure, this is not going to go down the way that they might think, but they are right to praise him in this way. And Jesus knows exactly what's ahead of him. He knows that this multitude of his disciples, they don't fully get it, do they? And why don't they get it? Remember this? When, when Jesus in chapter 18 foretold of his death for the third time, here's what Luke told us, chapter 18, verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was what? Hidden, concealed from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Their ability to perceive what Jesus was saying about his pending death was was hindered by God, which on the surface to our finite minds makes absolutely no sense, does it? Why not just reveal it to them, God? Why not make it clear to them? If we were to zoom out, put ourselves in that situation, we probably would be able to conclude, well, if he had made it fully clear to them, they would have probably attempted to mess it up. But God in his sovereignty kept them from understanding. And the question would be, why? We talked about that in Luke 18, but I want to remind you of something that one of the old dusty prophets said, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts, this is God speaking through the prophet, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Little sidebar, we shouldn't put too much stock in our thoughts. You know, people go through crises and they, they're, they're facing crossroads in their life, big decisions or whatever. And you ask them, well, what, you know, what's going on? And he's like, people will say, "Well, I'm thinking about it." Don't put a whole lot of stock in your thoughts. Your thought life is important; it should be full of the Word of God. But here, God said through the prophet, "My thoughts are not your thoughts." Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as, high, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Grappling with the sovereignty of God is good. It's a good thing. Regardless of where you're landing or where you're at in the journey to try to get your head around this God who's so big that his, his, his sovereignty is so magnificent and yet also so specific. It's good to grapple But at some point, we all have to land the plane, folks, on this truth right here. And I'm so thankful God spoke this through the prophet. We have to land it on, you know what? His thoughts and his ways are higher than mine. I can't put him in a box. He's not always going to be palatable. God is complex. Got to land the plane. Despite the disciples' lack of understanding, they are praising Jesus as king. And that is absolutely the right thing. In fact, it's so right. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What a celebration that must have been, huh? As he's coming into Jerusalem, you can imagine Jesus on the donkey and people shouting at the top of their lungs, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's at a fever pitch in Jerusalem, and yet Jesus is riding that donkey with a heavy heart. Why? Certainly he knows what's ahead of him. He knows what's coming. But I think there's something else going on. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, Jerusalem, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are what? Say it again. Same word. When Jesus told the disciples about his death, these things were hidden from them. Here, Jerusalem, her king, is riding into town as it was prophesied, by the prophet Zechariah on a donkey, and this is hidden from them. They are hidden from your eyes. One of the struggles that we have with the sovereignty of God, again, we want to know him, don't we? Not not, not some human trumped up version of him. Not some dumbed down, watered down version of God that might make it easier for us to sort of you know swallow what he's like and who he is we want to know him as revealed in his word amen so one of the struggles we have with the sovereignty of God is that sometimes it feels like we can just be honest in here right feels like his sovereign actions lack compassion anybody ever felt that way besides me like God what are you doing You're riding into town, into Jerusalem as it was prophesied, and yet, God, you would hide this from them? That you would conceal to Jerusalem that her king is riding into town? Why would God do things like that? You remember Moses? Remember, God comes to Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell Pharaoh what? What? Let my people go. And did Pharaoh do that? Not at first. Why? Exodus chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Does that seem harsh to you? God said it was harsh. He said, Tell your grandchildren that I dealt harshly with the Egyptians. Tell, tell them that I, how I dealt with them in order to put my might on display. Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why not just open Pharaoh's heart and have all of Egypt turn from their idols and worship Yahweh? God gave the answer. We may not like it, but he gave the answer. He did it in order to put his might on display in Egypt so that the people of God would tell their children's children about the mighty works that God did and how he dealt with the Egyptians. That's why he did it. So the question becomes, do you want to know him? You're afraid to answer now, aren't you? I want to know him. I want you to know him. I want to know him as, as he's revealed himself in his word. I don't, I don't want some dumbed down, watered down version of God because here's what I know. When, 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 when the going gets tough in my life, I don't need a small humanized version of God. I need God to be as big as he is. Even if that's not always easy for me to digest, I want to know you Question is, how do we reconcile God's sovereign action that at times we struggle to get our heads around? How do we reconcile that with places in Scripture that, re- that reveal God to be a God of love and mercy and compassion? Is that a, is that a good question to ask? You ever struggle with that? How do we reconcile that? How do do we connect those dots that God is love, God is mercy, God is compassion, but at times he deals harshly with people? That at times he hardens hearts, and at other times he softens hearts. Is he thoughtlessly or carelessly random in that? How do we reconcile that? Here's the first thing I would say to all the believers the born-again children of God in this room. Here's good news. God has not hardened your heart. He's taken out the hard heart, and he's put in a soft one. You have been reborn by his spirit. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but he's made you alive to God in Christ and seated you with him in heavenly places. So when you believers encounter the aspects of God that the Bible rightly calls us to fear him, to tremble before him, what do you do? You look to the cross and you stand before this awe-inspiring God, justified as his child and part of his family and part of his kingdom. So you can rejoice with unbridled joy this morning that God has not hardened your heart. Amen? But how do we reconcile that? Here's what I would say, one thing, just from this text. Did you notice Jesus? Does Jesus know that the time of Jerusalem's visitation has been hidden from them by God? Does he know that? And yet he laments. And yet he mourns. It's been concealed from them by God. And does Jesus relish that? Well, in one sense, we'd have to say yes, because Jesus only and always relishes the will of the Father, right? But in another sense, he doesn't. He mourns, he grieves, he laments that Jerusalem has failed to recognize the time of her visitation. What does that mean, visitation? Luke's used that word two other times in this gospel. Let me show you these two instances. Luke chapter 1 verse 68. This is after John the Baptist was born and his father begins to prophesy at the birth of John the Baptist. He says, "Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed, he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David." Here's the second instance, Luke chapter seven, verse 16, when Jesus crashed the funeral of a widow's son, y'all remember that? He just busted right up in there and raised the guy back to life. And when he did that, verse 16, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited, he has visited his people. Clearly that term means God is showing up for the purpose of salvation. So Jesus isn't relishing the fact, even though he knows it's been hidden or concealed from them by God, he isn't relishing the fact that Jerusalem is missing it, missing the time of her visitation. Why? Because he's a compassionate Savior. God is a compassionate God. And you might be saying to me, I... I don't know how to connect those two things. And here's what I would say to you that God is sovereign and that He would do this, and yet He's also compassionate. God is complex, God is bigger than us. His ways are, His thoughts are higher than ours. He does what He does in His sovereign wisdom to put His glory and might on display. And that's not intention. with his compassion, with his love, and his mercy. That's why I say sometimes you got to let the Bible create a whole new category of thought for you. That God could operate in this way and still be a compassionate God. That God could operate in this way and still only and always do exactly what is right. Has God done what is right here? We're going to see why in just a minute. But two questions that emerge from that for me. Has God made people, and I'm thinking about Jerusalem and the Jews in Jerusalem who did not recognize the time of their visitation because it was hidden, concealed from them. Has God made people do what they don't want to do? Is that who he is? I want to remind you about Jesus' first lament over Jerusalem. Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Remember this. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Do you see the compassion and the loving nature of God? But why not? Because you were not willing. You were not willing and behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've talked about this. Apart from divine intervention, human beings do not see or perceive the lordship of Christ. Why? Because they don't want to. Apart from God fixing our wanter, we choose our own way, don't we? We choose our own way. We choose our own path. We we go in any and every direction but towards him. We worship any and everything but him because we choose it. The gospel writer John said it this way, people love darkness and hate the light. Why do people choose darkness and not light? Because they love it. That's what they want. Thus, God is sovereign and man is responsible. We make our choices. We have a will. The problem is our will's not free because we only do what we want. And unless God fixes our wanter, guess what? We don't want him. So when God sovereignly, listen, this is what he's done for all of us. We talked about this last week. Why do you obey? Why do you follow? Because you want to. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 6. Thanks be to God. That's important. Thanks be to God. Why would he say that? Because God's done something. Right? Tracking. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin. Is that true? Is that what we were? That sounds pretty intense, doesn't it? Slaves to sin. Why are we slaves to sin? Because that's what we want. We're born into sin and we want it. Why do we sin? Because we want to. Why why are we bound to sin? It's It's not like we don't make choices. We make choices. But our free will isn't free. It's bound to sin. But thanks be to God, you who are once slaves to sin have now become obedient from the heart and you have become slaves to righteousness. Slaves to sin have now become slaves to righteousness. In other words, our wanter has changed, and we only do what we want. Our wanter has changed. And who did that? Thanks be to God that we who once slaves to sin have now become slaves to righteousness. Why was Jerusalem not willing to be gathered by Jesus? Because they weren't willing and they're responsible. But God has to fix their broken water just like he did ours. Thus, God is sovereign and man is responsible. And as hard as that may be for us to get our heads around, that is the truth. God hasn't made anybody do what they don't want to do. What did he do for Zacchaeus? He opened the eyes of his soul. And Zacchaeus saw the greater treasure. And seemingly without any instruction from Jesus, he gave away half his goods to the poor and restored anyone he defrauded four times over. Why? Because he was trying to follow a rule? he was trying to, like the song we sang this morning said, he's trying to check a box. No, because his heart was overflowing with gratitude that he saw the eyes of his soul were open to see Jesus as the greater treasure. Here's my second question. God hasn't made anybody do what they want to do, but he has definitely concealed from Jerusalem the time of her visitation. And here's my question. Is there a clue in the text as to why God would do that? Why in his sovereign wisdom that he did not open the minds and hearts of Jerusalem to see her king riding in on a donkey as it was prophesied? I think there is a clue, but let me say this. It won't entirely resolve the tension for us. It won't entirely resolve the tension for us. You know, God in his word has told us everything we need to know, but if you've read your Bible for very long, it doesn't take long to figure out. He doesn't tell us everything we might want to know. But here's the answer, I think, of the clue that's given to us in the text. Look at verse 43. Jesus has just lamented, these things have been hidden from them. In verse 43, for, what, what word could we substitute for the word for? Because. Everybody say because. So these things have been hidden from them for or because. Why? The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Why was it hidden from them? Because something's coming. We've talked about this. You've been at res. In 70 AD, what happened? The temple came down. Why? That's not random. Why did the temple have to come down? This eighth wonder of the world that people were so in awe of. Jesus' disciples even, as they're going through the temple, they say, look, Lord, look at this. He would look at them and say, do you realize not one stone's going to be left on top of the other? Is that just because God's in a bad mood? No, because it's time for something else. It's time for the veil to be torn. It's time for a kingdom of priests to be established. It's time for our high priest to go into the true holy of holies that's not a type and shadow of heaven, but it is the true holy of holies where the presence of God is and offer his own blood, not the blood of a goat or a bull or sheep or a lamb, but his own blood as the once-for-all sacrifice for the sin of his people. You know, about 50 days from this point, it's going to be time for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on all flesh and for the age to be ushered in where we as believers in Christ can come before the throne boldly to obtain mercy and find grace. Why does the temple have to come down? Because it's a type and shadow of what God, it's time for God's people to have the law written on their hearts, not on stone tablets. It's time for the sacrificial system to come to an end. That's why it was concealed from them. That's the answer that we see in the words of Jesus. And you know what? It doesn't answer every question, does it? That's what God did. And that's why he did it. And we still might find ourselves going, but why this way? Couldn't you have done it another way? When I ask questions like that, as I read my Bible, I almost hear the father saying to me, Bradley, my ways are, My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. But here's what I know, and you know this too. I don't relish the destruction that Jerusalem endured under Rome when the temple was destroyed. I don't relish that two million Jews died. I don't relish that 100,000 more were taken captive. I don't relish that. But I tell you what I do savor this morning that there's no temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices of sheep and goats anymore. That's over. And Jesus, the King riding into Jerusalem, not to do war with Rome, but to do war on sin and death. And in order to do that, the temple order had to come to an end. And if, and if, We still had any remaining doubt, even after reading Jesus' words, that that is the reason it was hidden from them. Did you notice what comes right after this? Where does Jesus go? Right into the temple, throwing out the money changers. It's time for that to come to an end. That's why God concealed it from them. Do you want to know him? Try that again. Do you want to know him? You know, when I... As I studied this text. Well, let me, let me read this first. The magnitude and the specificity of God's sovereignty. When the believers and acts were threatened, when they healed, Peter and John healed a lame man and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in the temple and thousands were saved, they were threatened by the Sanhedrin. If you don't stop preaching in his name, we're going to kill you. And they go back to their church They go back to their people, and then they pray. And this is part of their prayer, Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city, talking about Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, we know him, it's a bad guy, right? Pontius Pilate, another villain in the story, right? Along with the Gentiles, got to be careful there because that's what we are. And what? Peoples of Israel. To do what? Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was all part of the plan. God is sovereign, and man is responsible. God's sovereignty is magnificent, it's specific, and he's doing what he does. To put his glory and his might on display for the sake of you and me, his people, so that we might tell our grandchildren, this God is big. And I don't know about you, but I read this text, I live in this text, and I come away with two conclusions, two conclusions. When I, when I pray the prayer and I, I come to God's word saying, like the song we sang this morning, I want to know you, not some invention of you. I don't want to just know some, some things about you. I want to know who you are. If you are God, if you are the Lord of heaven and earth, if you hold all things together, If you are the Alpha and the Omega, if you're the author and the finisher of my faith, if you are my only hope, I want to know you. And as I start to see him, particularly in texts like this, here's one of my first thoughts I'm small. I'm so small. God is big, and I'm small. I have little joys, and I have little sorrows. They don't always feel little. When my child was born, my children, that joy didn't feel small. When we bought our first home, it didn't feel small. When I came to pastor here at this church, standing before you today, Almost 18 years later, this doesn't feel small to me, but my life is small. In comparison to him, my life is small. The happy and the hard, the pleasurable and the painful, as big as they might feel to me at times, in the grand scheme of God's big redemptive story, it's small, isn't it? I'm a part and you are a part of his amazing story. And yet there is an appropriate place for us to ask like the psalmist, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who are we that you should call us your own? There's, listen, that kind of humility, when you you consider God and his greatness and his bigness, it stings at first because it's humbling. I'm not as great as I thought I was. This book's not about me. Oh, that's offensive. The point of this story is not me. Are you kidding me? The world revolves around me. I push back from that, just like you. But there, listen, there is a joy unspeakable and full of glory when it finally dawns on you it's not about me. I'm a part of the story, but the story's about him and his glory, and it's a magnificent story, even when I don't understand it all. I'm small. There's a joy that I taste when I welcome that. Here's my second conclusion. I'm small, number one. Number two, I'm confident and and. Hear me. You can't take this confidence from me. You can't. The world can't take it from me. No circumstance I face can take this assurance from me. Why? Because I know him. Because he didn't harden my heart. He opened it. He softened it. And he made himself known to me. And as I've Considered his word with the help of the Holy Spirit that now lives in me. I know something about him. What do I know? I know he's sovereign. And I know his sovereign is magnificent and it's specific. And I don't always digest that pill well. But I'm embracing the, the words of my father, which if you, you had good parents... In some way or another, they said this to you as a child when you didn't understand their rules. My ways are higher than yours. My thoughts are higher than yours. I've been around the block a few times. Trust me. This is what God is saying to us in his word. I've told you what you need to know. Maybe not everything you want to know. Now you see through a glass dimly, but then face to face. I'm confident, and you can't take this from me. The world can't take this from me. Death can't take this from me. Sickness can't take this from me. Political turmoil in this nation and around the world can't take this from me. And here's the assurance that I have when I embrace. God is sovereign, and his sovereignty is magnificent and specific. I'm right where he wants me to be. And you can't take that from me. You can't steal that joy. It's it's a rock solid joy because it's anchored not to some idea of God, but to the truth of what he's made known about himself and his word. I'm right where he wants me to be. And yes, I can look back over my life and I can look at things that have happened and choices that I have made and I can go, oh, that worked out so good. I see how God connected the dots and brought it all together and it worked out for my good and I'm so thankful for that. But I can also look back and I can see things in my life where I go, God, I just, why that way? Why this long? Why this hard? Sometimes it feels like God goes around his elbow to get to his thumb with me. I don't know about you. So I look back and I go, I just, I don't understand. But here's what I do understand. I'm yours and you're mine. You've called me by name. And I will never, ever be out of the palm of your mighty hand. No matter what comes my way. Even when death knocks on my door, we've sung, you, Do you hear what we sing? We sing sometimes such rich biblical truth that I wonder if we process rightly. One of the songs we said, we sang this morning, said, to, "In some manner or another, even when death comes, what will I say? I'll be like the apostle Paul, to live as Christ, to die as gain, to depart with Him." To depart and be with him is far better. Death has had his teeth knocked out. It's 2,000 years ago, the king rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as it was prophesied, and the temple came down because a once-for-all sacrifice was made. No longer will sin be atoned for through the blood of sheep and goats. Jesus offered his own blood. And I feel small. But I know this. God is sovereign. And I'm right where he wants me to be and for you, whatever whatever stage of life or whatever circumstances you're facing this morning, whatever whatever fears, doubts, uncertainties, struggles you're battling this morning, you know, I don't know that we come to a text like this and we come away with four or five things to do. What do I do with this? I think the only thing I can come up with to do is to bow my knee and praise his name. You are sovereign. You are big. And you don't fit into any of my boxes. And I'm great with that. Because I know no one's going to ever Take me out of your hand. To so rest in that, church. Go in that joy. It might not have played out exactly like you wanted it to. It might not have played out like you would determine would have been best or ideal or optimum. But here's what we know. Nobody would have foretold that the king of heaven and earth would ride into town on a donkey, much less be born in a stable. But God knows what he's doing, and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture, amen? Lord, we want to know you. We want to know you, not some version of you, not some cooked up, watered down, bland version of you. We want to know you for who you are. And I'm so thankful that today you have invited us to do just that. You've empowered us by your spirit to know you, even if there are aspects of you that we struggle to get our heads around. But Lord, we'll come into your presence and we'll let our words be few. We'll quiet our hearts and our minds and we'll rest and know that your ways are higher than ours, your thoughts are higher than ours, that you do what you do to put your glory and might on display. And we say... As Jesus taught us to pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's what we want. Let your kingdom come and your will be done and whatever we need to that end, we pray that you would give us that. As we, first of all, we go in fellowship together, we're gonna break bread and let it be be symbolic of the daily provision that you give us to make much of you in the world as we scatter. And then when we leave this place, May we go in that unbridled joy knowing that you are God and we are your people. And I pray that that joy would be contagious and would call people out of loving darkness and into loving the light. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.
0: We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z faith where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at